Welcome back to another episode of Millennial Manhood. We got another book club episode. Today I got Joel DeSantis with me. Joel, you did a episode with me, your story, I don't know, 40 episodes ago. And Yeah, de- December 2018, I think. Okay, yeah. Well, that's hot hot second ago. So, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. All right, so the way we ended up on this book, uh, you brought it up to me because a bunch of people had mentioned it to you. Then my buddy James texted me and said, hey, literally like a day later, hey, have you ever read Man's Search for Meaning? I was like, no. And he was like, dude, I just finished it. It might be the best book I've ever read. I was like, whoa, okay. And then a day later, I'm going down a YouTube hole and I end up on like randomly because I've watched a lot of YouTubes from Bosnia, Serbia, Croatia, et cetera. Mm-hmm. This random Croatian chick who has a YouTube channel on psychology does a review on this book. Wow. <laughs> so that was three days in a row. So I thought, okay, okay. It's a sign. Yeah. I think we need to talk about man's search for meaning. So I got <laughs> it. I got it on Amazon, which there's a link in the description for everybody who should go get it after this. Uh, I think I got it on a Saturday. I read, it's like 160 pages. I, wrote, I read 120 pages Sunday afternoon. I couldn't put it down. And uh, I'm done with it. I know you're done with it. So uh, give me some of your initial reactions. Yeah. Oh, and I, I listened to the audible in about four and a half hours, I think. So it's yeah. Half a season of a Netflix show or less. <laughs> so, okay. So it, well, it's uh, it was a little bit, it was exactly what I expected it to be. And it was also a lot different than I expected it to be. It was written in 1946 and it, it was written in a lot of, in a way similar to the, not necessarily a hero's journey, but it was an autobiography written in the way you'd see a movie biography written. He starts off being brought to the Auschwitz concentration camp and he goes in the, the right line, I believe. The left mm-hmm. line is, is gas. And then he gets through that. And basically he starts off the book discussing the period of that initial shock of getting in the camps, then just the settling in of getting in the camps and then learning how to push through that. And it starts out where he was written, he had written his manuscript. He had a manuscript and that manuscript got taken away with all his possessions. And that's what drove him to have some form of meaning that drove him to push through the hard times and, and have some perspective. And uh, essentially looks about the creation of uh, logotherapy or logotherapy, where it, the concept is, or the idea of logotherapy is you find a healthy search for meaning and that's what allows us to live because mm-hmm. the, question that starts logotherapy is why don't you kill yourself because we all have the option to to kill ourselves as humans but we don't because of meaning and so he he finds a person's meaning by asking that question because that allows him to find what their values are and what pushes them through suffering in life yeah it it was really interesting because the first half of the book is basically just his experiences in the concentration camps and there's no chapters in the first half of the book it's just one continuous narrative, which is a really interesting read because you get like 110 pages in before you're done with the first half. It's more than half. So I'm sitting here in, in my office reading this and my wife Tamara is on the computer doing something. And about halfway through, I look at her and I say, babe, we need to just stop complaining forever. I mean, <laughs> you know, you, you, like you talk about the left line, right line, and just some of the different things that he talks about. Something as simple as what you've never thought about or what I've never thought about that the sexual urge completely disappeared 
mm-hmm. and the prisoners of the camp. And he expands a little bit more on that just regarding, you know, when when every other aspect of life has been completely mitigated and, and you're in this constant state of survival and you're in this constant state of fear and cold and hungry and working, sex is the last thing on your mind. Whereas in, in a society where we easily get 2,000 calories a day, I mean, we're constantly thinking about sex, 24-7. Yeah. I mean, we're inundated with it. So even something like that, I just never had really thought about how that would impact being in a concentration camp, being where, you know, your entire existence and your entire life really revolves around some jackass yelling at you and forcing you to do things and forcing you into labor, et cetera. And have the concept of the only possessions on this entire world are some rags that were taken off of another guy that guy gassed a couple hours before he showed up. Yeah. And, and the, the fact that we have so much abundance and one half of a stale piece of bread is what would make the difference between someone being alive and someone dying. Now, if you were to see this person just falling over in a ditch and you found them passed out and you said, Oh, look, a little piece of bread. That's kind of nasty. And you toss that piece of bread away and, and you walked about your merry way. Well, you just killed that guy. You, hmm. you never know that what, it's just a little piece of table scraps to us that in a concentration camp was all their lively possessions. And it really gave some perspective. Let me ask you this. So in the first half of the book, when he talks about making it through the day, um, purely through visualizing his wife and the love for his wife, that part really hit me. Not just the whole wife part, but the whole concept of love is what kept him going day in and day out. What were, what, was, what were your thoughts as you were, as you were going through that part? It really, it gave me perspective on how I don't take enough time to think about my fiance or my loved ones because I, I take them for granted. I just assume that they're going to be here tomorrow. They've always been there. And it gave me a moment of reflection about the times that I don't do that, about how I may be feeling really self-centered. I, I'm, my car gets on E and I have to rush around and drive out of my way to go to a gas station. I'm feeling all angry at the world about a problem that really isn't a problem. Mm-hmm. Instead of taking the time back and, and remembering all the love that have, have, I have in my life and remembering all of the more important things and just material stuff. Yeah. That was a good question. <laughs> <laughs> Your face right now. You're just looking at me like, huh. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna do some it uh, therapy it on you. really sad well i was li- i was getting my tires changed i'm sitting there and there's all these guys running around and i'm listening to this super deep emotional book <laughs> yeah yeah uh, and and then my mom called me with my nephews and niece and nephew and on facetime and she's sitting there talking to me and i, I was just it really gave me pause and made me think how much i do appreciate my family yeah and how much we're i'm thankful for it and how by forgetting the love I have in my life, it can allow hatred or anger to start to take over. And by getting grounded and anchoring myself back in love, it can get rid of those feelings that can be toxic or um, lead to just a lack of meaning. It's the whole theological concept of God as love. You know, God right. as, the, as, the, as, the, uh, as the power, the iner- inherent power of God, uh, the, the essence of God uh, within our lives and within our existence being love. You know, and again, if we want to go down a deeper theological rabbit hole, you know, logotherapy coming from the word, Greek word logos, which means meaning and Christ within Christian thinking, within particularly Orthodox Christian thinking, Christ being the logos, the spoken word of God coming into existence to essentially make things right. You know, and, and as I was reading through that, you know, obviously Viktor Frankl is uh, is Jewish or was Jewish, <clears throat> so he I know he wasn't writing this from a 
Orthodox Christian perspective. I get that much. But, you know, as I'm thinking through logotherapy and I'm thinking through the meaning of existence and the meaning of finding that worth in us, you know, I think about there's one example he gives in the second half of the book about this. I believe he was a rabbi, rabbi coming for therapy to him because Viktor Frankl was a clinician. Right. And um, in the concentration camps, this rabbi had all six of his kids killed and his wife. And then he got remarried and it turned out his second wife was barren or not able to uh, have children. Sterile. Yeah, sterile. And um, he, he comes to Dr. Frankel for therapy and he's going through his, you know, his struggles and, and why he's being burdened and tortured so deeply by all of this, besides the obvious that he lost his entire family. And eventually they get to the point where, um, you know, Victor Frankel says, well, aren't you joyous in the fact that you shall see him again someday in heaven? And disclaimer, I fully know there's different schools of thought within Judaism on heaven. All right. So I'm not a, I'm not a Jewish scholar, so I don't want any Orthodox Jews yelling at me. So he, um, he says, aren't you happy that you're going to see them in heaven? And that's when the rabbi breaks down crying and says, you know, doctor, since my children died as martyrs of innocence, they're going to receive the highest glory of heaven. And I, as a sinful man who'll live a full life, will never be able to reach that. And I'll never get to see them again. And Dr. Frankel says, well, what if you are living a full life in order to take on the suffering of their loss to purify your soul for you to be able to reach that highest degree of love of heaven? And apparently the rabbi wiped his tears, stood up, shook his hand, thanked him, walked out. <laughs> and, and that's what we mean by logotherapy. What he meant by logotherapy is giving a meaning to the suffering, giving a meaning to the struggle and the and the um, extreme pain that we experience in life. That other story that he told about the doctor who came in, um, his wife had died recently, and and then the man was really upset and didn't want to go on. And he asked him, "What what happened if you died and your wife was still alive?" And he said, "Oh, she'd be torn up. It would be terrible for her. Mm -hmm. She'd be distraught." And he said, "Well, you should be." look at it this way. You saved your wife a life of suffering mm. and she would have passed away. didn't pass away before you. She'd be the one suffering. So your suffering is allowing her to avoid that. And he did the same thing. I think he said, he just sit up and walked out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, these stories are ridiculous when you, when you read them, but they make so much sense because you're like, and I know you and I have talked about this. Life is suffering. Life is, uh, is difficult. Life is, and I, I know I talk about this a lot on the podcast about life being suffering. I don't mean that life sucks. That's not what I'm right. saying. I'm just saying that life is difficult and there's constant challenges and constant disappointments in this life. And if you do not come to terms with that fact, you will experience a life of just negativity and disappointment and lack of meaning. You have to embrace the suffering and say, you know what shit happens. Right. We're, <laughs> we're constantly trading problems for other problems. They can be Correct. better problems or worse problems. If we have a hundred thousand dollars and you invest it right, then you have a million. You got to learn how to deal with that million. Or if you invest it wrong, well, now you first you had a problem how to invest it and then you lose it all. Now you got a, a worse type of problem. So Correct. it's either bigger problems or smaller problems, but they're all problems. And and avoiding suffering, I think that's where a lot of the suffering comes from is by trying to avoid the suffering now, pounding suffering in the long run. Well, let me ask you this. What were your expectations for this book? And um, did they meet or were they exceeded or did it underperform? Well, I had heard about it before. I think it was either a Ryan Holiday book, maybe Jordan Peterson mentioned it. Um, I know and, Jordan Peterson talks about man's search for meaning a lot in his lectures and such. Yeah. So it did. It, it really, it, it met all my expectations in a good way. Sometimes we think, you know, was it what you expected? And that comes off as maybe disappointment, but 
it was exactly what I expected. It gave me what I wanted. It was simple. It was straightforward. It was applicable to my life. It seems to build on the philosophy or the saying, the, the, the Greek philosophy and Greek saying, um, amor fati, you know, love of fate, mm-hmm. where we either have a choice to fight fate, fight whatever happened to us, or we can say, I'm not only going to not fight it, I'm not going to just accept it. I'm going to love it because mm-hmm. no matter what happens, it happened and it had some meaning and we don't ever know what that meaning is until we get to look back at it in the long run, which is the other main part of this book is um, seeing things within the context of a time frame because mm-hmm. we don't know if any event is a good event or a, a good experience or a bad experience. You know, we don't know if, for example, getting on the Titanic that first day, that was a good experience, mm-hmm. right? People would, if you said, is taking a trip on the Titanic a good experience? People would have said, yes, that is a good experience in the moment if they thought it was. But by zooming out in the long run, it probably wasn't for most passengers. Whereas if you ask somebody that missed, missed the boat for some reason, if they overslept, they tell you, this is a terrible experience. I missed the Titanic. It was supposed to be the biggest ship ever, but it was the launch day. It was going to be amazing. And two weeks later, missing that ship was a great experience. Yeah. So I, I think that's a, the biggest thing I got out of the book is when he talks about sitting in the concentration camps with uh, typhoid fever, hallucinating, and he was rewriting his manuscript in his head. And the way he did it was by imagining he was in a lecture hall in the future, giving mm. speeches about his, about logotherapy. And that allowed him to take the suffering of, of the moment away and also allowed him to give meaning perspective to the suffering. So the mm-hmm. suffering had value because it was going to lead to that speech and lead to greater things. And it also had less pain because the meaning was coming eventually. I think one of the interesting parts of the narrative is life in the concentration camps became significantly easier for him when he accepted his faith and accepted the fact that he could not change it. He just had to let it happen. And and there are several different, and we're not going to spoil the whole book, but there are several different examples of either escaping from the camp or being sent off on another train or whatever it may be where Mm -hmm. he could have impacted where he went in that moment. And each one of those would have been the wrong decision. It makes me think of, you know, in Serbo-Croatian culture, growing up in that environment, accepting your faith is like it's, it's kind of like a big thing. It's called Sudbina. So if you go to any Baba o- o- over there and, <laughs> you know, you say the word Sudbina, they, they always perk up and they'll talk to you about your Sudbina. But that accepting of that Sudbina, and, and uh, it, it might be just due to the fact that that part of the world has been tortured pretty much by everybody, whether it's the Ottoman Turks or the Austro-Hungarians or the Germans or the Americans or the Soviets or whoever. It's like a, it's like a giant bombing field that you can just, you know, kill people and for whatever cause that you want to believe in. And and it probably created within the ethos of that culture, a certain type of idea of like, you can't change the future anyway, so you must accept it. So I thought a lot about that, about how suffering within even a culture can create different perspectives and mindsets and and end results. Yeah. You, you see that with people who might live in higher crime areas. They they don't have they might end up if if they take depending depending on the meaning they give to the crime and the unpredictability of their environment, they can do either one of two things. They can learn to appreciate each day or they can say each day is meaningless. I might as well live as he didn't hedonistically as possible yeah and it doesn't matter because tomorrow might not be here or someone can learn to appreciate each day 
so that if one day does show up and it's unpredictable, it could be tomorrow, it could be a month, it could be in 50 years, at least they were able to say that they did their very best in the time that they had. Well, I, I think one of the things that really got me thinking as I was reading this book, I know we intellectually know this, but I think reading such a vivid description of the concentration camps, you know, we get one shot at this life, at least as far as we know, we get one shot at this life. You know, certain people had one shot. A lot of people had one shot. And it's not just the 6 million Jews. It's the 10 million Chinese. It's the whatever many million Russians. It's the 400,000 Serbs and the 300,000 gypsies and whoever that were sent off to concentration camps. We just hear only the 6 million Jews in the United States because that's what our history books teach. But there's millions upon millions of other people on top of that as well. Yeah, it's 50 million Russians, 60 million Chinese. Yeah, just through the roof numbers. And yeah. um, but certain, but for the sake of conversation, specifically Auschwitz, let's, let's take that. Certain people got one chance at this life and they ended up in a damn concentration camp. And that was their life. And that's where it ended. Yeah. That was, that was devastating to think through that as you're reading it. As I'm sitting in my office, talking into a microphone, looking at you on Zoom. It, just how coldly indifferent nature is and fate is to humans and how he mentioned little things that he mentioned, like we, I, we think 70 years ago is such a long time or 80 years ago, but the little things he mentioned, like he says, you, what you found in the concentration camps was somebody that wasn't able to sleep in their normal original, in their, their past life. They couldn't sleep if somebody was talking outside their building down in the street, you could now fall asleep in a bed consisting of a piece of wood and a yeah. blanket for nine people, they could sleep all night long. And just the, the a level of abuse physically and mentally that our bodies can handle and we can adapt to them. It just, it's astounding. And it really, it, fate is tough. Fate's cruel. It can be, um, it's something we can't control, but what he really, what he makes the biggest point of his book when he talks about it is, is we can't control something, but all we can do is respond to it. And how we control that response is the freedom we have. You know, mm -hmm. we have the freedom to choose how we respond to something or we have the freedom to choose. We, we don't have the freedom to choose our situations. Um, and within the camps, he talked about how the people that, eventually made the choice that they weren't going to go on any longer. They would just not get up. Mm. They would smoke That's when a they cigarette would die. and died. Yeah. In 48 hours. Um, it, it, what was also interesting to me is the description of the guards and how mm -hmm. big of, you know, pieces of crap they were, but how uh, his commentary around how the guards behavior changed once they knew that the Americans were approaching because whatever duck out, uh, that one was liberated by the Americans. It was in Bavaria. And uh, yeah, how to, how to behavior of the, they started offering them cigarettes. They started, you know, helping them pick stuff up. They, just this whole complete different behavior of, man, I hope I can buy some good favor with these guys. And, and that again, made me think a little bit more just around the, just around the fact that human beings are capable of so much good and beautiful. And those same exact human beings are capable of the most horrendous evil imaginable. It's terrifying. And it can be the same person too. And Correct. it's, and we can't predict it. Um, the most important or the, the most powerful statement 
that he said the most powerful quote for me was uh, it was uh, there are two races of men in this world the decent man and the indecent man mm-hmm. both are found in everywhere in all groups no group consists entirely of decent or indecent people so in this sense no group is of a pure race yeah and some prisoners were doing acts that were worse than the commandants of some of the camps yeah yeah the capones yeah what do you call them the, the uh, capos 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 yes yeah the capos uh, some of the capos were worse than the SS guards. In fact, some of the prisoners actually protected the guards because there were guards in there that were doing the right thing. So even even on the other side of the fence, if you will, or the other side of this of history, the guards there were guys in there that were doing the best that they could to try to save lives. Yeah. So so it's a really cool story within the book. Once the Americans liberated the camp some of the prisoners hid certain guards and wouldn't tell the American soldiers where they were hiding them until they promised them that they would, they would be, I mean, left alone basically, which, which, Oh man, that, that takes us down another route of like, I just spent years in a damn camp where these people are holding me prisoner, killed my entire family, forced me into labor, gave me one piece of bread and some bullshit soup every couple of days. And now I'm still protecting one of these guys. I understand, I understand he's the best yeah. one out of the worst, but it's like, oh, I have to ask myself, would I have that strength of character to do that? I don't, I don't know if I'm that. I'd have to be there to say. Yeah, and I don't want to be there. No. <laughs> Make that clear. I don't want to be in that position. I, I'd rather look at this intellectually than experience it firsthand. Yeah, but, but think about how many grudges we hold on to that are just BS grudges. Right, and we have platforms now that are designed to fuel those grudges. Yep. That's act- grudges have become our meaning in society mm-hmm. these days. He talks about existential crises of meaning or group crises of meaning. That seems to be something that we as a culture are running into because our meaning has become likes and clicks and buying the next nicest shiniest thing or saying that we made more money this year and those things lead to grudges they lead to resentments and feelings of never being adequate enough and what frankel talks about is how we can't ever control what the group is doing but we can control how we work within that group to make best of the situation i want to unpack what you just said i think this is an incredibly powerful sentence grudges have become our meaning that's strong look at you joel just giving us all kinds of golden nuggets. No, that's really interesting i mean you're right everybody at least in the sphere public discourse which quite frankly, is social media. We don't really get together at the town hall anymore to yell at each other and de- debate. Now we just call each other Nazis and commies on, uh, yeah. on uh, social media because none of us actually have the courage to stand up for our own belief system and debate it intellectually. We just yell into a vacuum of people who already think like we do. And then we're like, yeah, see, I'm right. Screw these guys. But yeah, the amount of hatred and anger that we've been able to cultivate within these quote public forums is is incredible and i have a deeper theory that that's really done by design because if you can divide people and make them stupid it's more easy to control them right you take away religion replace government with religion and and then government becomes uh, subject to politics and that becomes subject to politicians and politicians that you have to divide people yeah and and it's really easy to control people once you divide them and yeah. i mean i've gone on a rant on another podcast about this that i was on with a gentleman in england you know in social media for example you are the product you 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 human being who think you're so special 
We've got all these problems and all these talents and all this other narcissistic bullcrap that you think the world revolves around you. You are the cattle being herded. Take that for a second and internalize it. You're just a number. You don't matter. Your opinions don't matter. You might as well, from a digital standpoint, go ahead and, and tattoo a little concentration camp number on your arm so they can identify you. It's called your IP address. You're nobody. And you're yelling at other nobodies so that you'll keep coming back so that your phone can keep listening to you and shove an advertisement down your throat so you can buy more crap that you don't actually need. Something's free. We're the product, right? Correct. Our habits, that's, that's what they're getting from us. They're exchanging our, those dopamine hits of like, like, like. I get to express my opinion. I get to make a verbal jab towards you. I get to get to own you. Yep. Really all that is doing is it's allowing them to learn because they have computer learning now, learn more about humans and learn how to divide us in even better ways and learn how to tailor things specifically to my nuanced viewpoints and tailor something specifically to your nuanced viewpoints. So that we keep getting in these smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller bubbles. And the more small bubbles you get, the more bubbles you have. And then you have more people divided by more and more nuances and more and more petty things and keep going back for more, just like going to the liquor store. Well, but think about those grudges being that meaning compared to what we read about in this book. The fact that people get so angry about something written online by someone who does not matter. <laughs> like, like most people, if somebody yelled some random offensive opinion to me in the middle of the street, I would look at them and say, you're insane. Have a nice day and keep walking. Right, right, right. Like if some if somebody like like if 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 somebody uh, uh, stopped me in the middle of the street and said, "Hey, I hate Serbs," like something really deeply personal to me or something like that, I'd yeah. say, "Cool, bud. Have a nice day. Bye." You, ba you basically said I'm stupid. That the same person could have said, "Hey, I like to eat dirt." It's like. Good for you, buddy. Yeah, it's like, whatever. Bye. You do you, man. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> you see it on Twitter, it's like, oh my God, I got to respond to this person. Bah, 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 bah. I think it, I think it's the public forum thing of it. Because if if somebody walked up even 150 years ago or a thousand years ago and they said, I hate Serbs or Joe's got a funny looking nose, you probably think they're an idiot. But once they put it on a piece of paper and they go and nail it to the wall in yeah, the public yeah, forum. Yeah then it somehow becomes a prideful thing. It's not just about one person. It's about having to defend your honor within the group because it's been let out there and somebody's read that. And now you have to defend yourself. But the difference is, I understand where you're coming from, but the difference is a thousand years ago, we would have had to have that discourse within the group. Right. And the group would say, okay, this dude's insane. Whereas here, there is no, there is no group. It's literally just two random at handles mm -hmm. going at each other. It, it's, yeah. it's insane. And we, at least then we had a, in the past, we had communities, we had small towns, we had families, we had parishes, whatever groups you were made of. And at least that, that meaning within of the group, it held you together. Uh -huh. So if, if you had disagreements within two individuals, you were able to forgive those grudges because uh -huh. your group, group meaning was strong enough to be more important than some petty grudge like if you're out hiking and you get lost in the woods and somebody steps on your toe you're not going to get mad at them because you guys are both working together to reach a higher purpose mm -hmm. and now that we've lost that cohesion as a society through the social media vacation of communication it it's just leading to chaos because people aren't humans anymore we're not people with souls we're just these 
avatars of people. We're words. We've reduced people to this digital thing. It's not a human being. It's it's their profile picture. It's their memes. You, you want to hear something crazy? Always. My sister was at our house and my sister has millennial manhood in her podcast section. She subscribed to it. And for some reason, I was standing, I, me, was standing right next to her phone and I was talking about scheduling a podcast episode. And I'm not kidding. 30 seconds later, she gets a notification on her phone, new episode by millennial, millennial manhood. And she looks at it and said, Yavitsa, I've never gotten a notification that you released a new, new episode. Her phone, <laughs> her phone heard my voice connected it to my podcast that she subscribed to and gave her a notification. Everything we know is five years out of date as civilians. Yeah, it's so disturbing. Who knows? And then right afterwards, she looked at her Instagram and was like, because we had been talking about, like, I think it was a movie that she had never even heard of, never seen, a, uh, never seen a, 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 an advertisement for whatever. Pulls up Instagram. First thing she sees, an advertisement for that movie. My friend collects watches and we were sitting and we we're talking about different watches. He that pulled up my Facebook newsfeed. There's an advertisement for some auction company locally that was selling Rolexes. And then you click on the adver advertisement in the comments. People were arguing about the authenticity of the, uh, the Rolex, mm. the market. The, the guy that owned the auction company was sitting there swearing and cursing at, at a guy who questioned the validity of his, his old Rolex. And <laughs> that, that was pretty much all of that's pretty much all of the scary data mining you could get along with all of the nastiness of humans right there and just one just experience. one beautiful mishmash of bs yes it's yeah it's a, it's interesting so you know part of me feels like we really let uh, old victor frankel down with uh with the direction society has gone i don't know dude it's scary it's scary um and it's not like I'm not part of the problem. I have a freaking podcast. I mean, let's not pretend like it's yeah. called millennial manhood. Okay. It's very yeah. much so an echo, echo chamber. Like nobody, you know, a hardcore socialist is going to listen to this podcast. It's not going to happen. Okay. Right. You know, it might attract like some far right people, but then they'll listen to this and be like, this dude isn't, isn't far right enough. It's like, no, I'm pretty moderate, bro. Sorry. Uh, I've had that happen. Right. Where people got pissed off at me. I've been called alt-right and I've been called basically a commie. If you're pissing both sides off, you're doing something No, right. and it makes me so happy to piss both sides off because they're, I think they're both. Doesn't it feel oh, good? They're so damn insane. They're so insane. I just thought it was funny that I, I'm trying to remember who called me alt-right, but it was like right after I had released an episode with a female guest, it was on Facebook, called me alt-right. Um, and I was like, okay, bro. Like, Cool. You know, having a podcast around helping men uh, become better human beings. All right. Got it. So, but it's just, it's just the term that's thrown around. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's socialist. It doesn't matter if it's Nazi. It doesn't matter if it's all right. It doesn't matter if it's racist. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, anti-Semitic. It's just terms being thrown around because we throw them around all the time. None of them have meaning anymore. You want to talk about man's search for meaning? We need a dictionary. Well, what's going on? I, I was talking about with this with somebody a while ago and every generation or there seems to be a breakdown of society over the past 150 years you had the industrial revolution and that led to the civil war and then you had the political revolution and that led to world war one where monarchies fell and new forms of government popped up and then you had 
the, uh, I guess you'd call it maybe the scientific revolution of the 1930s and 40s, which led to World War II. That may have been a second, the second part of the political revolution. Yeah. And, and with all of these things, people, they lose their meaning that they formerly had. And they're still trying, they're trying to find a new meaning. And that discord and that, that shakeup of society, it leads to collectivism, essentially. And we're seeing that again. Um, we're seeing the same thing happen now that in a lot of ways it was happening in the 30s, in, in the 40s, um, in Europe, where people are blaming others for their problems. And there's two different, I, see, I can't conflict things or put two things together. You read Grant Cardone or Gary Vee or whoever, and they talk about all the values of personal responsibility. Do everything you can to make your life the best you possibly can and do everything you can. And then if you're failing, then maybe something's wrong. But what's being taught to people these days is you're, you're not failing because there's something you're doing wrong. You're failing because you didn't get free college or you're failing because your parents weren't rich or you're failing because you're not as thin or you're not as good looking or you're failing. We're, we're giving people meaning based on immutable characteristics. We're not giving them meaning as individuals. And that's what's being promoted these days is, is seeing everybody, people as a group before seeing them as a person. I can't tell very anything about anybody just by looking at them. People are more complex than that. And to try to boil people down to just what they look like or who they voted for or where they were born, you can't do that. And, and it's promoting ignorance in a lot of ways. Well, and, and folks who are listening that know my story and my family's story, I don't know if you know this, but I had two great grandfathers executed by the communists after World War II. So all my great grandfathers made it through World War II, and then two of them got beheaded basically within a year of, of it ending when the communists took over, really took over Yugoslavia. So again, to me, the experience of that collectivism and, that co and, and communism is not some distant yeah. textbook. No, 70 years ago. My parents were 30 when Yugoslavia fell. Okay, they, they lived 30 years under this shit. Like when I explained to my in-laws that my parents were the first people, my parents' wedding in, in an Orthodox church was the first time they had ever gone to a wedding at a church in their entire lives because it was towards the end of communism. Plus my family was very big on giving two giant middle fingers to, to the regime. Um, we've always been rabble rousers all, all the way back to the Ottomans. Hence, I've got a lot of ancestors who've been beheaded. Um, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a common theme. But they were the first. Do it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were, I mean, my family's words. Our family crest is an icon of St. George and an icon of St. Demetrius. And underneath it, it says, for freedom or death. Okay, that, that's ingrained in our blood. People are fighting the lack for, to have no freedom now. They're fighting. Correct, to have everything taken away they from They want them. people to tell. Yeah. They're like, I want you to tell me where I can work. I want you to tell my neighbor, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I can't work as hard as possible. I'm not going to work that hard. So I want you to make somebody that does work hard, not really get the benefits of that because it makes me feel better about my lack of effort. We're, we're enabling people's feelings of inadequacy instead of telling them, instead of having a, a set line in the sand, a set of values that we aspire to aspire towards, we're settling for the lowest. We're settling for the lowest. We're aspiring to the weakest and 
whiniest in the crowd instead of having a higher ideal to aspire to. Well, but, but here's the thing. I don't look, if somebody wants to be the weakest and the whiniest, I don't care. Sure. Go for right. it. And here's the thing. Don't get me wrong. I don't believe all people are born into the same exact circumstances of life. I don't think that's even remotely no. close. Some waspy kid born into a rich Connecticut family has a very, right. very different life experience than some poor immigrant kid born into a single family house or single parent household in El Paso. Completely different right. life experiences. So don't, don't take this and run with it and be like, oh, everybody's got the same. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's not true either. No. Life's about balance. But yeah. every single one of those individuals has an individual responsibility to reach their own personal potential. Right. And if your potential is to be the weakest and the whiniest, then reach that potential. But don't tell me I have to be on that same exact playing field. And that potential can be altered by the meaning that we place on our circumstances too. Um, a lot of these people that are born in these wealthy families, that doesn't mean that they're not going to go and spend all that money in 20 years and end up bankrupt or, or, sue, or, or yeah, or kill themselves because they have no meaning. They've, they've been given everything and have no problems. They never solve any problems and by not solving any problems or having any challenges when they're growing up. It's like somebody that was given crutches to walk on for their first 20 years of their life. And then you take those away. That person was never, they were never able to build up the muscles to really come and deal with life head on. Whereas some person might have terrible circumstances, like I was saying earlier, but looking back, those were the circumstances that pushed them to grow and push them to become problem solvers and push them to become resourceful. Um, I have a good friend who he's from Eastern Europe and he grew up in the USSR and came to Canada with a single mother and owns an international company and has excelled and just done amazingly everything he, he possibly put his mind to um, broke records at company. I worked with him at two different companies. He broke records was like the top person there. Then he went out and crushed it with this custom suit company. He just, uh, he's a boss. He, he does everything. But the reason he is that way is because he grew up with a single mother and he had to be there and he had to learn how to be a fighter at a young age. Yep. And looking back, he wouldn't have everything he's got now if he didn't learn how to, to become a fighter at a young age. So uh, by telling people that they need to, play the victim all the time instead of being a victor we are doing people a disservice because we're giving people a bad meaning we're assigning a negative meaning as a culture to people's circumstances instead of allowing them to choose their meaning we're telling people when they grow up oh you grew up in this neighborhood that means that you're going to be y because you grew up in x and we're we're giving people meanings through marketing and through social media, instead of allowing them to have the time to choose and the, to have to deal with the, the hurdles that allow them to naturally come up with their own meanings in life. Yeah. And it's, you know, when you think back at the concentration camps, as he's talking about it in the books, when people accepted the fact that it's time for them to die, that's when they would die. Like you said, they'd smoke a cigarette and they'd yeah. say to hell with this and they'd die within 24 hours. They had given up on life. Their meaning had become not survival, not seeing their family again, not any of that. They were just like, to hell with it. I'm, I'm done. So I know we could talk about this forever, but we're running up on time. Man, search for meaning. Would you recommend it? I would definitely recommend it. And I'd also recommend practicing logotherapy in your own life because from, from what I can tell, it really 
it takes a weight off his shoulders by able by being able to look into the future it allows you to see the present as the past and by seeing the present as the past in a way it allows you to change the past yeah and influence your future in a way that you never could have yeah big big fan glad we got to read it together glad we got to have this discussion um for everyone obviously click in the show notes you can get the book got the amazon link on it it's something i'd like to marinate over yeah. so maybe having another discussion in a, a few months yeah i kind of i kind of it, it's it is it's not long but it's so damn dense um i've thought about having like multiple people read it and we can have like a long form podcast about it with multiple voices within the conversation um i think that'd be fun that'd be an excellent yeah cool well joel thanks for coming on bro 